Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Hello and welcome. Uh, my name is Angus McDonald and welcome to Club Book with Robert Kolker. I am a professor at the University of uh, Minnesota in the uh, Clinical Science and Psychopathology Research Program. And uh, I've been uh, asked to uh, host tonight's event because my expertise is in schizophrenia and psychosis. Uh, and um, I'm really excited uh, that you're here to join us uh, this evening. Before I introduce uh, uh, Robert Kolker uh, more formally, allow me uh, uh, just a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing him to you. Club Book is a program of MELSA, uh, and if that doesn't roll off your tongue, it's uh, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, uh, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies which is part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Uh, and Ramsey County Library, my local library, is the co-organizer of this evening's talk, so uh, I'm really proud of them. Um, thanks also uh, go out to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. And so without further ado, the preliminaries aside, uh, uh, Robert Kolker, is an established and esteemed investigative reporter who has slowed down enough tonight to join us for a moment. Uh, long known in journalism circles for his exposés in New York Magazine and Bloomberg News, Kolker became one of the nation's most read nonfiction writers almost overnight after the April 2020 publication of Hidden Valley Road inside the mind of an American family. It's now a, uh, a number one New York Times bestseller, which has got to be a great feeling. Um, it's set around the 12 child Galvin family in post-World War II Colorado. Considered a paragon of domestic prosperity and bliss by friends and neighbors, 
the Galvins uh, really struggled uh, in their little cul-de-sac. Uh, schizophrenia was diagnosed in six family members uh, and eventually came to light as a centerpiece of uh, this family's struggles, but only after the Galvin story had confounded medical science for many years. Uh, Oprah Winfrey recently selected Hidden Valley Road for her reimagined Oprah's Book Club, uh, bringing uh, Bob to a still wider audience. And the book was re-released now in paperback just this past month. Um, after a short presentation, uh, which uh, Bob's about to do, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Uh, you can drop your questions into the comments thread here on Facebook and our magical technical manager will route them to me. Uh, if you'd prefer to ask a query a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Clubbook here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com and we'll try and uh, weave this all together into a, uh, a tapestry that makes sense for everyone. And uh, so with that, uh, Bob, please, welcome. Thank you so much, Angus. And thank you to Club Book and to the Ramsey Library and to the bookshop and to all of you for, for joining tonight. It, it, Zoom's made it possible to reach so many people and to be able to talk about this extraordinary family and to talk about the book. Uh, I'm just very grateful for this opportunity. And I'm also glad to learn more about um, Angus's work and the work of his colleagues. I hope we get to that as well. To kick things off, I'm happy to talk about a little bit about me, but mostly about how I came to get to know this family and tell their story and also tell the a second story almost about the about the uh, condition of schizophrenia and what we understand and what we don't about that condition. Um, so, you know, I, I think in case it wasn't clear beforehand, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a patient. Um, uh, I have no background in psychiatry. I, I'm a writer. I'm a narrative journalist. Um, even before high school, I loved writing, but I really discovered reporting and journalism in my 20s when I was a reporter uh, for a little community weekly newspaper on the west side of Manhattan. That was my first real straight journalism job. And so while others in my generation got into journalism to cover the White House or to be a foreign correspondent, I really connected with reporting on everyday people. Um, every day at this little newspaper, we returned to the same people dealing with the same situations, whether they were fighting a new skyscraper or dealing with a crime problem on their street. It was a little bit of a soap opera to write about them in each week's issue, and it had a narrative aspect to it. And I found that I was comfortable walking in the shoes of certain people week after week after week. And I became fascinated by nonfiction storytelling or narrative nonfiction or new journalism or long form journalism, whatever you want to call it, that's what I wanted to do. And so I started reading Joan Didion and Tom Wolfe and really becoming more ambitious about the sort of work I would do. My career really took shape at New York Magazine where I was, I was there for 15 years, writing feature stories and cover stories. And during my time there, I became drawn to stories that required a lot of research and reporting on complicated issues. But at the end of the day, they still, they focused on the interior emotional lives of ordinary people. And also through exhaustive reporting, 
I, I, the people in these stories sometimes were able to lift the veil on a part of society that we would otherwise never see. And, and most important of all, hopefully it would help readers and myself as a reporter recognize the, the universality of what's going on, the humanity and people that we never might've considered before are really quite like us. My first book, Lost Girls, was about an unsolved series of killings in Long Island, just right near New York City. It was a murder mystery, a true crime book, but it also was a social issues book about five of the victims and their lives and what made them vulnerable. And in the end, Lost Girls was about five families, about the family's strife and about their estrangements and about their bonds. And, and now with Hidden Valley Road, I've, I've found a way to explore that subject of families in crisis more deeply than I'd ever dreamed I'd be able to. The story of Hidden Valley Road for me really begins in the spring of 2016, just five years ago, when a friend introduced me to two sisters, Margaret Galvin Johnson and Lindsay Galvin Rauch. Now they're both in their 50s. Uh, they are the youngest siblings and the only girls in a family with 12 children. They have 10 older brothers, and of those 10, six of them had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, the more I learned about the Galvin family, the more I couldn't believe their story. It was horrifying. Their, their oldest brother, Donald, tried to kill his wife before being sent to a state mental hospital more than 20 times over two decades. And the seventh son, Joseph, sent threatening letters to the president and Matthew believed he was Paul McCartney and Peter once shattered the windows of the house right in front of his parents. And then there, was, there were real tragedies in the family. The fourth son, Brian, was a talented rock musician who killed his girlfriend and then turned the gun on himself. And there was also sexual abuse. One son, Jim, sexually abused both sisters. All of this in one family, I couldn't imagine it. And I wondered how such a family could even pretend to stay together under such horrible circumstances. I wondered why these sisters wouldn't have run away the first chance they got never to come back. But the sisters, when I spoke with them, showed that they still had a reservoir of hope. They actually cheered me up on the phone call. I got sad, but they were happy. They were exhilarated because they wanted to talk about how they had each found a way through their traumatic childhoods. And they told me that their family has a scientific legacy, that they were so statistically unusual that they became one of the first families to be studied by the National Institute of Mental Health as part of the search for the genetic origins of schizophrenia. And then later on, when I talked with several of the researchers who analyzed the family's genetic material, I learned, sure enough, that samples of the Galvin family's DNA have helped form the cornerstone of genetic research into schizophrenia that continues today. And some of this information about what had happened with the research the family hadn't even known yet. Uh, by that point, I was hard at work reconstructing their life story and tracing their genetic legacy. The two sisters wanted their family's story told as a work of independent journalism, and they believed that every member of the family, sick and well, would participate. But at first, I was really skeptical about this. I'm a reporter, and I know about you know, the HIPAA laws, the medical privacy laws. And no one has to be told how sensitive a subject mental illness can be, how those of us who have it in our lives often find it too painful to discuss with other people. Even more than autism or bipolar disorder or depression or Alzheimer's, schizophrenia is something that people have difficulty really looking at directly still or discussing explicitly. But this family was ready. Every single surviving Galvin family member was interviewed for this book. And, and as they opened up and as I learned their stories, I was intimidated by the storytelling challenge, but I was also exhilarated because I can think of many wonderful and moving first person personal memoirs about mental illness. 
And I can think of many great books about the science of mental illness. But to my knowledge, Hidden Valley Road is unique because I, I can't think of another nonfiction uh, book that is a 360 degree full scale narrative representing every single family member's point of view, sick and well in a family. I structured the book as a family saga, uh, like any other, like, like fiction or nonfiction, like, like East of Eden or like the corrections. I, uh, that was my sort of what I was after. I start with the parents, the older generation, Don and Mimi Galvin, marrying during World War II, moving to Colorado and raising their family. Um, it wasn't lost to me that the dozen children in the Galvin family perfectly spanned the baby boom. Donald was born in 1945 and Lindsay in 1965. Their century was the American century, filled with optimism, at least in those early years. And then you start to see some warning signs and that something is amiss, but the parents have no preparation for what happens next. The kids first start to have their psychotic breaks in the late 60s, and then years later, the decisions the Galvin parents made when all is well and all is not so well become reevaluated by the children later on. Sort of a two-part book, the older generation in part one and the younger generation in part two. One of the biggest challenges, though, of a book like that is to, uh, to for this family in particular, is to portray mental illness accurately, perhaps in a way that hadn't been tried in nonfiction before. I believe our popular culture has a way of kind of othering the mentally ill in both low and high ways. Sometimes the mentally ill people in books and movies are monsters, and sometimes they're vulnerable, precious helpless souls who have a special insight that the rest of us lack access to. And I don't think um, anyone, perhaps even in this on this Zoom, who has mental illness in their family can look at their time interacting with their loved ones and come away thinking that most of them, or even any of them, check off either of those boxes. They aren't monsters. They, they aren't secret mystics. They're people. And I wanted to write about them as people. And uh, that was really job one for me. I had many poignant visits with the surviving mentally ill sons. Donald has an air of peace about him as he talks about his family in fanciful terms. He claims to be descended from an octopus. Matt is grouchy and irascible, but also very lovable and very grateful for all the help he receives. And Peter is a natural performer. He plays the recorder for everyone who comes to visit and talks about his family with them. Spending time with them helped me understand that mental illness and schizophrenia in particular is not a cookie cutter condition. Even people in the same family manifest it differently. Um, so in discussing their illnesses, I kind of over decades weave in a sort of shadow history of the evolving science of mental illness through the 20th century. And this is not always a pretty story. It's about barbaric treatments like lobotomy and and researchers working in silos and not listening to one another and about different theories of the illness clashing and about progress being very slow and often polluted by groupthink. In Hidden Valley Road, I cover a lot of ground from early cases studied by Freud and Jung to the, to the period in the 1950s when therapists started blaming mothers for mental illness and then the anti-psychiatry movement of the 60s and 70s and then the focus on genetics today. And finally, there's some actual encouraging potential breakthroughs in research that I point to at the end, some hope that we can finish the story on, conducted by researchers whose work began decades ago studying the Galvin family. The science story is really meant to work in service of the story of the family. So if you're reading the book for the science, the stakes are higher because you, hopefully you care about the family and what happens to them. 
And if you're reading the story for the family story, you start to care about the science more, hopefully, because again, the stakes have been set for you. Um, this is modeled after some of my favorite narrative nonfiction books out there that help people understand things that they ordinarily wouldn't understand because there's a compelling story running at the bottom of it. And in order to tell this story, I also write about the children who did not become mentally ill because they really were as affected as their brothers in many ways. They sometimes felt as if they were carrying an unstable element inside themselves. They, they wondered how long would it be before it got them too. And they each searched for ways to cope and we learn about them all. And through it all, the two sisters, I think, uh, Lindsay and Margaret are sort of our mainstays. We know we can come back to them. So that helps you manage all the various people and personalities in the book. By holding on to Lindsay and Margaret, and also I think their mother, Mimi, we have that center to guide and sustain us. And we learn about their relationship to one another and their very different ways of processing everything that happened. Uh, they need one another, but they clash too. And through it all, the reader is given several very different ways of looking at the same family. The stakes here are, of course, about more than just one family. Schizophrenia, and I hope we'll talk about this, Angus and I, it affects about one in 100 people or more than 3 million people in America and 82 million people worldwide. And by one measure, those diagnosed take up a third of all the psychiatric hospital beds in the United States. And the suicide rate is alarmingly high. The death from COVID-19 among people with schizophrenia is alarmingly high. Uh, and, and over all these years, the truth about what it is has remained locked away inside the people with the condition. I think the Galvin said yes to being interviewed because they see their family story as more than just medically significant. They think it might bring comfort to many families experiencing uh, any traumatic issue who are tempted not to seek help or not to be open about what they're going through. They wanna fight the stigma. They, they feel like they have something to teach the world and I do too. Um, I think I'll leave it at that there and, and uh, look forward to the conversation with Angus and answering all the questions from all of you. Thanks. Uh, I think that gives us, uh, I'm sure there are many in the audience that, uh, that haven't read the book and that gives them a sense of, of why they should. Um, and there are a bunch of uh, folks here who have read the book and, uh, and it helps us sort of see this, uh, see this really significant work here and um, sort of get a little picture about how, how you were conceptualizing the project. It's one thing to be introduced to daughters uh, a remarkable family, but it's another thing for you to know that this needed to be your next project. I was curious, what was your motivation behind writing the book? Um, what, what did you want to accomplish uh, in, uh, in taking on this really daunting task? Well, the, um, you know, any, any, any undertaking, any nonfiction book undertaking is, means years of your life. And so I don't enter into it lightly. Uh, nothing would have made me happier after my first book Lost Girls in 2013 to jump in and work on another book right away. But it, it's a big commitment. And so I really kept saying no to things. And then the things I wanted to do weren't panning out. I continued to work as a journalist, of course. But finding an idea that you really would want to commit to that would make it worthwhile, that's really, I think, a hard thing. Um, this family was per, appeared 
and and was ready to talk about some very difficult subjects, but I was not convinced. I thought it might not be workable because of the medical privacy laws. And I thought, I wondered where the hope was because the, the, so much tragedy was visited upon this family. So I decided to give it some time. What I said to the sisters after my first phone call with them was, let's take our time because nothing happens quickly with books anyway. And I offered to get on the phone once a week for an hour or so with a different family member of theirs, starting with their mother, Mimi, who is still alive and about 90 years old. And then I would also get on the phone with the medical researchers, some of whom hadn't been in touch with the family in years. And then I'd try to talk to third party disinterested experts like you, Angus, just to say, so I'm talking to this family. Do they seem interesting to you or, or are they you know, a dime a dozen? And you know, just to check it all through. And I told the sisters that at the end of 10 or 11 or 12 weeks, we'd all know one way or another just how doable this is. And it might be very obvious to us that it can't happen. And if that's the case, I would just, you know, if I had taped any of the interviews, I would hand the tapes to the sisters and that would be my good deed for the, for the year. And they, they could perhaps work on a memoir or, or, or some other project. So I thought it would be a good way to spend time. But as, I, as time went on, I got to know the family better and I, I saw, that they were all willing to speak. Even the people who might've been standoffish were deferring to the sisters because they went through so much being the youngest in the family, everything sort of trickled down to them, all the difficulties that when they heard the sisters wanted this to happen, they weren't going to disagree with them. And then Mimi, the mother, when I met her in person finally, about six months after that call, um, she was wonderful. She was apparently not interested in a book until recently, but the new scientific information about the family had kind of you know, perked her up and vindicated her because so for so long the medical establishment was blaming mothers for mental illness, and here she had something new, like a, a new way of you know thinking about what happened. And so it all, you know, it's like how do you go broke first slowly and then all at once? Like like you write a book first slowly and then all then suddenly you're all in. Like with a little over a year after I met the Galvins, I suddenly was full time working on the book. But the you asked a different question, which is. Um, what, what, do you, what would make it worthwhile? And I'm very drawn to stories that, to, that have two tracks. And this is, was one of the privileges of being at a place like New York Magazine that allows the two tracks. The first track is a very compelling story where you're wondering what happens next and maybe getting to know people along the way. Hopefully it's emotional and it's vivid and it's dramatic. And then the second track is a, is a much more difficult and potentially profound and important question that you're pursuing. Maybe it's sociological or maybe it's scientific. In this case, it's the mystery of schizophrenia and how it, uh, you know, what causes it and who inherits it. Um, and so that as time went on, I realized two things. First, that, that this was, that I had by one way or another, I had found my way into another opportunity to tell those two stories at once. And then the second thing was, that it wasn't so, it wasn't a mistake that I'd been matched up with a family that it was going through such difficulties. I had written a book about five families going through really huge difficulties. I'd written about families a lot for New York Magazine, about uh, people going through not just crime stories, but, but a, adoption stories and um, uh, medical stories about you know, things facing families. And so suddenly I, I looking in hindsight, I realized maybe I wasn't such a generalist after all. Maybe I wasn't just a narrative nonfiction writer. Maybe this is what I do. I write about, about you know, people like the Galvins. And so I was, I was ready.
There is a, um, a saying that we have in, uh, in clinical psychiatry and in, in, uh, in clinical psychology and psychiatry, which is that a, a person doesn't get a, a, a mental illness, a family gets a mental illness because they're uh, the impacts of, uh, of these struggles really uh, reverberate uh, in so many directions. And I, I think that you're, you've, uh, training in this other domain, you struck upon precisely the, the skill set that's, that's needed to, to, to really dig into that, uh, that adage. Um, I think you've said a lot about the, uh, what was my, my second question, which is this, this, um, this dance that you, uh, that you choreograph for us between uh, what's going on in this, this larger scientific establishment, which is, uh, has elements of, of uh, other kinds of science that's going on. Um, we, we've got experiments, we've got you know, large machines that go bing and so on and so forth, but we also have this kind of tick-tock uh, in the back of our head, which is there's a lot of suffering going on here we need to, to understand more, we need to do better to, uh, to begin to address it. Uh, that story on the one hand and the, uh, the, the Galvin sisters um, uh, trajectory and their, their whole family's trajectory uh, at, the other time, at the other point. Well, you are, you've got a huge literature in schizophrenia, you're coming into it cold. And, you know, I got to give you credit, you really, uh, you really hit a lot of the high points. Uh, you know, a lot of the rock stars are, are in there. Uh, you, you take complicated ideas and um, string them into uh, uh, compelling language. What was the what was the hardest part of of pulling this together, and uh, what were some of the what were some of the difficult choices that you had to make? Well, there there are sections in this book that get very very sciency about twin studies, and then about genetics, about the human genome project, and and then um, finally when the family's genome is sequenced, they there is a a variant that's found, and I didn't. At the beginning, wasn't even sure what the word variant meant. You know, so I was relying on experts all the way through to sort of guide me, and it, not just one expert. And so, one thing that makes a any journalist looks look good is when they talk to people way smarter than them, and they guide them through and help help them with stuff like that. But um, the book for me was a really, really great mix of of stuff that demanded a skill set that I really had spent decades on, which is the the writing about people in emotional difficulties going through tragedy. And that, that, that part was going to be hard, I know, but it was something I was familiar with. And then the other part was gonna be writing about the story of the science of, of severe mental illness, of schizophrenia, and that I was coming in too cold. And that was scary, but also exciting because one of the great things about being a reporter is you get to learn new things and share your enthusiasm about them with, with readers. So I, I'm, I had a lot of detours or, or red herrings. So I, I thought, well, I'll go online and some MIT, I think, has free neurobiology courses. I'll listen on, on audio or on video, on YouTube. 
I'll do some listening and I'll hit the books and I'll go back to school and it'll be like getting a master's degree in neuroscience and that's what I'll do. And that didn't last well at all. That I didn't dial into that at all. I had no, I didn't have the background for it. It was all jargon to me and I couldn't connect with it. So instead I, um, I, I started pulling from everywhere and started to look at it as a narrative, as a historical narrative, as a history of science um, uh, project, but not just the history of science, a conceptual history of science. So you have groups of people who believe that, um, that it's genetic, but they can't prove it. And then groups of people who um, prefer you know, lobotomy or, or sort of experimenting on the mentally ill, like their lab rats. And then another group of people, the psychotherapists, who say, "Don't don't experiment on them. They're human beings. Let's 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 uh, champion their humanity. Let's let's try to cure them." But then those same people are blaming mom and dad. They're they're you know they're both right and wrong at the same time. Those concepts all colliding with one another started to get to me, and I started to realize that the 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 big picture argument that was happening about this illness and perhaps other illnesses was the same argument just modulated for different generations. It was a nature nurture argument. So, you know, Freud believes very, very reductively, like Freud believes it's nurture and Jung believes it's nature. And then a generation later, the psychoanalysts believe it's nurture and the geneticists believe it's nature. And then two, many decades after that, the, the anti-psychiatry people believe that it's nurture. And the, you know, again, the geneticists or the, or the, National Institute of Mental Health researchers I write about think it's nature. And then it goes, it just keeps going in different ways until finally the genome is sequenced and schizophrenia is proven to be genetic. And yet there's still a nurture component, an environmental component through epigenetics, through genes, the idea of genes being activated by something in the environment. It just, the, the beat goes on and on and on. And so I was able to sort of rely on that. But even that, as I say it out loud, it starts to sound a little chewy, a little like, wow, do I really want to read a book about that? So I kind of made a rule, mostly in revising the book, which is that this book couldn't be chapters about the family interspersed with cool stuff about mental illness in between. Everything that happens in the mental illness chapters has to have a bearing on what's happening to the Galvin family. I made it a rule. I didn't want a chapter to start here's something cool that I found out about schizophrenia while reporting this book. I, I wanted everything to be about something that raised the stakes for the family. So it both gives you a little bit of a breather from this very emotionally tough story about a family going through terrible things, but at the same time, it gives you context and helps you understand it. And I, I have lots of models for this. They're great. Some of the best nonfiction books do this. I think about like books by Michael Lewis, like a book like Moneyball, where, um, I'm not a big baseball fan. I apologize to my friend Darren from Minnesota, who may be in on the Zoom tonight. He's a huge Twins fan and was since college, but uh, it's not my thing. And I, I'm not really interested in statistics either, but Michael Lewis in Moneyball is able to make me care about both baseball and statistics by telling a compelling story where the stakes are set. I'm wondering, you know, is this manager going to be a disgrace? Is he going to lose his job? Is he going to be a hero or a goat? I want to know how it turns out. And so I'm invested in learning about all of the potentially geeky information. Right. Now you've got to learn about baseball to be able to. Uh, to <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, so that's my, and there, there, there are lots of terrific books like that, that I, that I was hoping to make this book modeled after. And the other thing you did that, that, uh, 
I, I was very appreciative of is you drew out the humanity of the scientists themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, you made them characters uh, as well. So these were not uh, disembodied ideas that were that were floating out there. They were uh, they were solutions that were being uh, were being suggested, were being tested, were sometimes failing, we're sometimes providing new insights uh, and, and ways forward. Believe me, if you're just focusing on the failures, you could have had many more characters uh, from, the, from the scientific side. And uh, I had to be very careful there because these two teams of researchers who studied the family, they just happen to be the ones who studied this family. It's not like, and they come up with very interesting, enlightening stuff, but they, um, they don't cure schizophrenia. And there are hundreds of researchers I'm sure colleagues of yours at the University of Minnesota, but uh, anywhere like around the world who are doing work like these people. So I didn't want to oversell this situation and say that they were, that they had found the uh, Rosetta Stone and that nobody else had it. But at the same time, humanizing them helps you understand just how this, how science is so often not a straight line, right? It's not like one day there's polio and then you get to work. And then a few years later, we did it. We, we conquered polio onto the next thing. You have people who are, more often than not, it's different people, different schools of thought arguing with one another or pharmaceutical companies being uh, enchanted by one approach and then going off and being more excited about a different approach. It, it's, uh, it's more like this. It's less like this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yet it's not fully cyclical. You, it's not just that nurture nature is going back and forth and it's in a, in a barber pole of... Uh, <laughs> uh, there, there's a, an increase. Each generation is really uh, uh, moving the the ball forward. A complex illness that has a that is, we constantly are sort of finding new ways to conceptualize what started as a very simple question, and I think it's it's worth. Uh, in, in this context, drawing out a little bit about why it's so important and why it's so informative to have a large family, what's called a multiplex family, which is a family that has a number of folks uh, with the illness. And um, maybe I can help a little bit here, mm -hmm. uh, which is that each one of those comparisons between an affected and an unaffected sibling is a source of information. So when you've got uh, 12 of those, you've got like 11 factorial comparisons that you can make to help you understand uh, what is similar between the, the, the affected uh, individuals in the family and what is uh, dissimilar across the, uh, uh, because within a family, they're sharing so many genes that it's highlighting the ones that uh, uh, more than just comparing uh, one person uh, that has the illness, maybe in this hospital to another person who doesn't have the illness that you've, you've, you've gotten off the street. So there's a lot more power there, as we say, uh, in, in, in science, much more uh, uh, leverage for finding these signals uh, that are, are very small uh, and spread across the genome. Yes, and, and with these multiplex families, the theory changes over time too. In the beginning, the thought is, well, if we can search their genes, clearly the sick, the sick kids in a, in a multiplex family will have a different genetic problem that's unique to them. 
and the well kids won't have that problem. And then years later, it becomes slightly different. It becomes the whole family might have, almost everybody in the family might have the same variant, the same mutation, the same genetic quirk that's going on. And then some of that will be, and but what you're inheriting is a vulnerability because you come up with the idea of schizophrenia as a, a vulnerability you inherit, not a not destiny necessarily. And then it changes again because now that, that now that uh, genomes have been sequenced, we found that multiplex families like the Galvins do sometimes have variants that they share, but it's not the same variant that the family down the street with schizophrenia has. So everybody's got something, but nobody has the same thing. And then that that just leads to a new question of with this quirk that the Galvins has, what part of brain function is it related to? Is it a flashlight that's shining a light in the darkness to point to something about the brain that we need to be making more resilient so that people who inherit the genetic vulnerability uh, to develop schizophrenia are more resilient? That's where we're at now. Maybe next week it'll be a little different. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for you know uh, taking a peek into my world and, <laughs> uh, and seeing some of the... Uh, <clears throat> Some your work sounds actually sounds, yeah the work you're doing sounds great but right before the talk began for those watching i learned that, that, that angus you you can talk more about it but the the one that the the one project that spoke to me was looking at people with schizophrenia who have who feel persecuted because mm -hmm. that makes me think of matthew galvin who really for decades now is that's sort of the emotional place he goes to when you talk to him yeah and it is uh, one of the most prevalent symptoms in this very uh, this this disorder that has many different manifestations. And so, one of the things that my lab uses as a strategy is uh, those differences among people who have uh, schizophrenia uh, express many different symptoms. And so, how can we understand this disorder on a symptom by symptom basis in terms of the uh, behaviors or what we call cognitive functions that are there, and then also in terms of their, their brain functions. So uh, using persecution, we can ask people, would you trust someone in this deal? Would you trust someone in this deal? Would you trust someone in this deal? And uh, changing the deal each time a little bit and including some deals in which the, your, your partner would have no incentive to betray you. Uh, and and people with uh, schizophrenia who are not persecuted will say, yeah, I'll take that deal. That's fine. But people who are are, are persecuted are more likely to be uh, to say, even if they're to betray them, they will they will say, no, I'm not going to take that deal because that person it, it doesn't matter if they have no incentive. It's incentive enough that they're they're trying to get me. And when they're experiencing that, we can see what's going on in their brain and look at how the, the communication in their brain may be different from, uh, from other patients who don't. So that's one of the levers that we're using. Yeah, the, the delight of working on this book is I signed on to get notifications from every place that was blasting out information about the latest studies about mental health and mental illness. And of course, it really is like a, a thousand points of light out there. Everybody's sort of working on something really, really tantalizing and very promising. And it's always, it's just great to see day after day, new information surface. 
Yeah, a thousand points of light. One of the struggles, of course, is to find the constellations. So, uh, <laughs> uh, that's what we get to do. But one of the concerns that follows me around as a, a schizophrenia researcher uh, involves the stigma of mental illness or a prejudice against people who are, are mentally ill. And this is a complicated aspect of Hidden Valley Road because some of the worst trauma is perpetrated by people with schizophrenia uh, in the book. Um, so I'm curious about how you struggled with that challenge of how to to present the, the human beings that were both uh, suffering from the illness and, uh, and were, uh, you know, part of the family that was uh, so affected? Well, I, it's a great question. And it was at the top of my mind from the very beginning because you have um, violence in this family and the, and then there's sexual violence. There's the, the, the two sisters were sexually abused for years by one brother who was also mentally ill. And I, I, from the start, I did not want to leave readers with the impression that schizophrenia is a cause of, you know, leads to pedophilia that there, there's no science to support that whatsoever. And so I made sure to say it explicitly twice in the book. Um, what, what we, you know, and then of course, more globally beyond this book, we know that severely mentally ill people are 10 times more likely to be the victims of a violent crime than to be the yeah. perpetrator of a violent crime. Right. You know, we, we know that, that our culture looks at them as like it's a monster movie. And so we automatically fear for our safety, but, but the numbers don't just don't bear it out. And then when something like say Boulder happens, um, uh, people look to mental illness as a cause, but I think what it, the more accurate thing would be to talk about untreated mental illness. And I think that's what you see in the Galvin family is some, is, is a family that, that came where the boy, the boys are coming of age and becoming sick during a time when the stigma is 10 times worse than it is even now. Uh, where the family is a, very baffled by the option, mental health treatments options out there and don't like any of them and are determined just to hope for the best and to pretend everything's fine. And so you have untreated mental illness persisting for years at a time until, and then of course, um, that and the number of the children all, you know, even at a young age, bouncing up against one another leads to fewer limits, lots of anxiety that then is acted out with violence. So it, it's part of their reality. My job as a writer is to not make it a monster movie. It, it's to make sure that it is a story about people going through difficulties, including the sick people. And um, I, with the possible exception of Jim, who did so much, you know, who was so cruel, um, I, I don't believe that there are heroes and villains in the book. And my, my job is to sort of talk about what happens at every turn with the family in a tasteful way, in a way that's not rubbernecking, uh, that doesn't center on the violence as the beginning, middle, and end of the story, but as one episode in a story that had a lot happening beforehand and a lot happening afterward. Uh, I think that the, that context ends up showing, I think readers who read this book will, will come away with, hopefully the context will show to them that it was it was the lack of treatment of these people that that led to the most violent episodes of their of their lives, and that once they had treatment, uh, they were less violent. Uh, that that I think might be the big takeaway. 
if they're looking if they're looking to and 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 you'll see that that um it's not a story of of six uh brothers in a family who become mentally ill and then become dangerous and menacing every day for the rest of their lives so that people fear for their lives you know it's about what's not in there as much as what's in there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh let me just add here that treatment god I, you know we all wish that it were had a higher success rate than it it, it does. It, it is certainly, uh, I'm sure you don't mean to portray it as the be all and end all, yeah, yeah. Uh, either, right? Um, there are a number of questions that uh, are, are coming in here. A lot of people uh, care a lot about this work. Um, do you still have a relationship with any of the Galvin siblings now that the book project is behind you? And how has the success of the book affected, impacted their lives uh, and, uh, and perhaps that relationship? Um, I am still in touch with them, mostly with Lindsay, because um, she's sort of stepped up her advocacy efforts you know, to raise awareness about severe mental illness and to be, be some support to um, to family members with people who who are mentally ill, so she's out there, and and so we we cross paths a lot on Zooms and we're on the phone a lot. But, and then Margaret, I was just in touch with this week. She lives in Boulder, and so she you know you know she she had some connection to one of the victims in the shooting. She's she is um, she's sort of looked at the book as a way for her to um, start a a whole new chapter of her life as well. She's an artist, and her art specifically deals with processing trauma. And so she has a lot to teach others. And so people are coming to her for inspiration, which she's really excited about. Um, The big issue with COVID is I couldn't see anybody face-to-face after the book came out. The last time I've seen them in person was, might be 2019. Um, And so I'm looking forward to September when there's gonna be uh, something happening in, in Colorado. And I'll, by then I'm sure I'll be able to I hope I'll be able to go out there and see people face to face. So the release ended up being sort of like how it began, which is trickling down to a phone call. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we're back to we're back to the phone now. It's true. Full circle. Full circle. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and uh, when uh, another question that uh, I've got a, a few great ones, so I'm sorry if, I, if uh, your question uh, is left out here. Um, what was the most surprising part of the research that you did for this book? Was is there a, a moment that sort of strikes you? Uh, well, I knew that that I would my eyes would be open to to canards that are out there that 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 you kind of grow up thinking and then you end up being wrong. Like I knew I knew going in that schizophrenia was not split personalities. It was not multiple personalities. That that was a canard. That was something that. Just pe- some people thought that just happened not to be true, but Thank then there you were for other things. That <laughs> yeah, right. and and then um, but then there are other things that I thought were true that aren't true. That for like I can't. We all in our lifetimes, it mental illness has been thought of popularly as about brain chemistry and about finding the right pharmaceutical drug to, that could be of assistance to you. And so it seems like a, a we're living in an age of miracles with new innovations all the time in terms of pharmaceutical treatments for for different mental illnesses. But with schizophrenia, they're stuck in the, in the 60s, stuck in the, in the 50s and 60s with, with some of the same 
uh, drugs. Maybe they're prescribed with more nuance now and maybe with much more family support and hopefully early intervention, but there's been no pharmaceutical new class of drugs for schizophrenia. And that was shocking to me because I thought that that would be that would be the good news, but it turns out that that's the bad news. And then the other one, of course, the other big surprise is that um, everyone kept saying to me, you know, schizophrenia is not an illness, it's a syndrome, you know, but, but, I, but I got a, a more, more of a depth of understanding of what that really means. Um, it, it's a word, schizophrenia is a word, it's a classification that diagnosticians use to group together various symptoms in order to help them for come up with treatment options. And it, it's also useful for researchers also. It is not a disease the way that um, colon cancer is a disease or COVID-19 is a disease. You can't look at it in the microscope and say, oh, there it is. Um, it, it is. It is a construct in that way. And in that sense, its definition has been changing every, the official definition has been changing every five to 10 years, you know, ever since the name first came out around the turn of the century. And then, now, you know, in as of 10 years ago, some the, there's been a longer conversation about maybe getting rid of the word altogether. And then hopefully there might be a day 40 years from now where what we call schizophrenia has been identified as three or four or 12 different discrete brain disorders, each of which can be treated, hopefully successfully, to different degrees. And and um, you know, that that would be you know quite a nice outcome. So it it that just a, my appreciation for that got deeper and deeper as time went on. Well, let me let me turn up the heat under that appreciation because uh, the very research you did speaks to the challenge that that we have. So um, I, I agree with your observation. Uh, I speak of myself more commonly now as a psychosis researcher than right. as a schizophrenia researcher, for mm -hmm. example. Uh, but even in the same family, you. You illustrate this uh, in, in certainly the, the Galvins, but also the Janian quadruplets. Mm -hmm. uh, there are different manifestations, uh, and each individual has a very uh, different uh, uh, set of symptoms that is almost as, if, if not entirely as, as if you'd just taken a, a, a found another patient who was unrelated in, in the, you know, in the next room in the, in the hospital, which uh, you know that the, the, the genetic predisposition is highly similar. Uh, well, in the case of the Janan quadruplets, which you describe in the book uh, and, and are, are very much need to be in our minds as uh, schizophrenia researchers, um, they, uh, even though they had the gen identical genetic makeup, this is the quadruplets, not the not the brothers who had you know shared fifty percent of their genes. Mm -hmm. uh, they are coming down ill at different times. They are manifesting it in different ways. Um, so at, at that point, you're just like, you know, uh, are there going to be the the? It's it's almost a fool's errand to look for types, and it it really does speak to this. Uh, this interplay between those that predisposition, that risk, and then the how that individual is encountering the world, how they are making sense of it, their histories and, and so forth, which is really you know another way of talking about this this uh, interplay of, of nature and nurture. Exactly, you you get the 
I, I couldn't have said it better. You, you get this situation where, um, and you see it with other illnesses too, where you might have the same genetic quirk that your brother or sister does, but your illness is slightly different because it's the gene, the gene isn't destiny, it's a catalyst and, and it's interacting with something in your environment. That might be an overly simple way of, 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 uh, of explaining that, but, but you, um, you don't, you, there's no genetic mutation out there that says two weeks after your 22nd birthday, you're going to have your first psychotic break. It's not, the genes aren't a recipe or they, they aren't a, they aren't destiny. Yeah. What they are is, is, um, is that it's a creating a vulnerability in your brain and your brain from even before you're born is interacting with the environment. You know, whether your mother's drinking alcohol when you're in utero or, you know, whether you live in a crowded, uh, chaotic city at the age of two or on a farm, you know, everything changes you and, and interacts with your genes as you get older. And, um, and so, and even in a family, it becomes slightly different. Even with the Janaines, who were identical quadruplets, their, their illnesses were different. And, and I appreciated that talking to the, uh, learning about the Galvins, about the six, six Galvins, because it is, things weren't cookie cutter like with them. Um, you know, one was catatonic and one was paranoid and one was delusional and one had actual visual hallucinations. Another one was sort of manic and self-medicated. It, it, it just kept, everybody was a little bit different. And yet, they all share, I could see why you'd call that all schizophrenia because they all at a certain point are, are sort of strangers to their own thoughts and feelings and emotions. And it is all happening either in adolescence or to the end of adolescence. So I understand why diagnosticians would, would group them all together too. It just is gonna take more research to figure out what's happening with each of them. We have some special guests in the audience tonight. Uh, hopefully uh, all of you uh, recognize your own specialness, but uh, in particular, there are a number of Galvins uh, who have joined us in the live stream, and I love that uh, Lindsay Galvin is continuing her advocacy even uh, even at this moment, and uh, pointed out that the average for getting help for those who suffer is 11 years, uh, and so that's a real failure of implementation and of public health uh, in the United States, and uh, uh, Ms. Galvin, thanks so much for uh, for bringing that. Um, Hi, Lindsay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so go ahead and wave. On Facebook, know? I'm on Zoom. How's it work? I don't know. <laughs> I'll just say hi. <laughs> um, uh, cool, cool. Um, so uh, we're we're getting near uh, 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 a time when we'll have to to step away here. Um, so I'm wondering. Uh, how this project relates to, uh, and this was a, a, a question uh, from the, the group as well, um, how does this project relate to uh, the next project that you're looking for? How is it in, what about this are you taking on to your future work and what what is that future work? Or is this one of those? Um, I like, I like the ability to talk for a long time with people about what they're going through and writing about writing about it in an authentic way. So that pulls me away from doing stuff that's off the news, like like a, like a, a Donald Trump book or a Joe Biden book or, or something like that. And um, and I'm not, I'm a certain type of journalist that's not that uh, I'd rather not be in a hyper competitive situation either. Like I would I wouldn't necessarily want to be chasing the same 
thing that 12 other people are chasing. Cause I feel like then you're just trying to get uh, nuggets of stuff that, that helps your thing stand out and you're, you're kind of not following your own way of doing things. And so I'm ready to continue writing about families. I'm ready to, to find a new story to tell. But it, it'll be harder this time because no family will drop in on me the way that the Galvins did. Uh, I'll I'll you know be going not looking around and researching and talking to folks who are studying family dynamics. I'm interested in estrangements, but uh, but also anything anything else. So that's that's sort of what's on my mind as I look for the next thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then maybe you could say a little bit. Uh, about how this is, has impacted your life. You, you've got, uh, it was picked as a Oprah's book club pick. Uh, how did you learn of that honor? What, what, did, what happens to an author when, uh, when these kinds of uh, things start coming your way? Uh, number one New York Times bestseller. Uh, that's gotta be tough. Yeah, it's stunning. And they, the, um... Each one of these has been stunning. And a little bit after each one, it's been kind of hard to look in the mirror because I don't think of myself as a Oprah's Book Club number one bestselling writer. So it, it, I'm still integrating the experience. But I'm smiling because um, Oprah Winfrey called me out of the blue. And it wasn't even on my radar because so many of her the books she chooses are fiction. It's not like, I don't think nonfiction writers even dream at night that, that Oprah would pick it for a book club. So I was just over the moon about it. And she really rescued the book to give her credit because publishing a book last year was like an impossible thing to do. Finding a readership in that moment when so much else was going on. And really the only books that were really hitting were ones about pandemics or about politics and Trump or about racial justice, obviously. Um, and so um, for, for her to select this book really saved it. It really helped it find an audience. And, um, and I'm really glad for that because I've, uh, the other component of this beyond the, the sales and, and such and beyond the, the honor it's been for me to meet and get to know the Galvins is the email I've gotten from lots of other people, you know, people with families with mental illness, people who were found something emotional to relate to in the book. And that part has just been over, just, just overwhelming. That email still keeps coming and it's just great, really great. So I think that can help but change me too a little bit, make me see the value in this kind of work. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that, that I want to thank you for too. Um, in, in my work, it is uh, one, of the, one of the risks is to uh, think about, you know, uh, the scientific perspective, think about how we're going to quantify something, how we're going to measure something. Uh, a lot of my students sort of uh, uh, hear reliability of that measure. Uh, what is the, uh, how long will it take? Those sorts of things. And uh, the, this, is, this is really the critical part of the story. This is what I want them to come away from their studies uh, uh, at my laboratory. Uh, appreciating is the, the humanity of, um, of the families and of the individuals who are struggling um, with this, this really uh, difficult and, and challenging disease. Uh, and many of whom, as, as you say, sort of find a way of expressing their, expressing who they are uh, in the midst of that, that maelstrom. 
you know, sometimes it's helpful to zero in on, on one story to help explain something much more complicated. It kind of brings it to life. And then other times there are wonderful books that tell talk that, that tell 30 anecdotes and spin them together in a powerful way. But but this family, I felt like it had had it all. It had there's so much was happening. Um, and and so many examples of of, tra of of processing trauma and coming out the other side. So many models that people could look to, even if even if you're not reading it for the schizophrenia, just reading about how different people make it through some of the worst things in life. Well, Bob, I want to thank you for um, finding a way to uh, shoehorn us in. You, you're cooking on all burners, and let, yet you've uh, found a time to uh, uh, step back from the stove to, to tell us a little bit uh, about some of the insights you've come across. And with that, thank you very much. I'm Angus McDonald. Have a great night, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Melsa, and thanks, Angus. This has been wonderful. Thanks, Bob. Bye-bye. That wraps up our Ramsey County Library event with Robert Kolker. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Therese Ann Fowler. Therese Ann Fowler is best known for historical fiction favorites, Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald, and A Well-Behaved Woman. Her latest novel, the instant New York Times bestseller, A Good Neighborhood, explores what it means to be neighborly in today's polarized climate. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.